0: Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we're starting a new sermon focus, and I'm calling it Jesus the Ultimate Physician. And the reason I'm doing that is because we've spent the summer in the book of Acts, which was written by Luke, who also wrote the gospel that bears his name. And you may not know this, but Luke was actually a physician. He was a doctor back then, a physician. And um, as you read through Luke's gospel, you find... If, if you're reading with, through the lens of Luke as a doctor, you see him do things and say things that a doctor might do. He He's focused oftentimes on healing, on um, people being set free, on a number of different aspects of Jesus's ministry. And so what I'd like to do over the next uh, weeks is take some of those instances from Luke's gospel and see the different ways that Jesus is healing. And it seemed fitting to start with the beginning of his public ministry. So we have, this morning we have... Um, Luke chapter four, and this is, I'll tell you my main point on the front end, just in case I am not as clear as I prayed to be. Jesus gives victory over temptation. Okay. Jesus gives victory over temptation. What has happened is Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. God gives a powerful, the father gives a powerful affirmation. This is my beloved son. With him, I'm well pleased. And right away, the Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted. For, for 40 days. All right, so that's the context of where we are. He's right on the beginning of his public ministry, f- freshly baptized, Holy Spirit is upon him, and the Holy Spirit is sending him out there. All right, so we have an an interaction in this text where the devil is tempting him. He waits 40 days until Jesus is really hungry, and then the devil starts to apply his, his worst medicine. So it'd be helpful to have a, a Bible open here and just look at God's word. Right away we have a problem. We, I mean, we Westerners, we enlightened, educated, smart, scientific people have a problem. We've got the devil all over this book. And we are tempted to think of the devil as a little red guy with horns and a tail who's a caricature or a mythological figure and he sits on one shoulder and there's an angel on the other shoulder and we tend to make him into almost a cartoon. And we say there's not really a devil. But if you're a biblical person He is all through this book from the very first section of Genesis until the very last uh, part of Revelation where he is finally dealt with by God. So if you want to be a biblical person, you've got to embrace the fact that there is a spiritual being called Lucifer, called Satan, called the devil, and dozens of other names, the enemy, um, who is in here and he's messing with God and God's people. And that hasn't changed. He's still messing with God's people to this day. Now, I don't want you to just uh, believe it because the Bible says it, but I want you to take what the Bible says and then look at the world around you. See if it lines up with what is true out there. I was up in, um, as I told you last week, I was up in Boston for some seminary work at the the first two weeks in August, and um, I was trying to monopolize on the uh, flight. I tried to do two classes on one airplane ticket to save on money, but that meant I had to stay in the dorms all weekend between the two classes, and most people went home or were commuters or drove home or whatever, and so it was me and all of the people from Africa and Asia that were there for classes, hanging out all weekend, and it was really awesome because it was worldview broadening. And, you know, we're, we're up in Boston, and um, one of the nights we went to dinner in a town called Beverly, which is right next to Salem, which is famous for the witch trials of the, the early uh, centuries before. And that's like, that's a moneymaker for that town. It's like, a, it's like a Halloween store year round. But see, it's grown in, in its blatant expression. And on the way to dinner, we came past a building that was called Church of Satan, red letters. And it was really a house of worship to Satan. And this stirred up a lot of conversation about spiritual realities. Now, what's so funny is we think, you, know, you, don't, you don't have to admit this, but if, you're, if I'm describing you, you should repent of it. We think in the West that we have been enlightened with truth. And we look at people that are in Africa, Asia, other parts of the world as naive as underdeveloped, as superstitious. Well, do you know what they look at us as? Ignorant. We are ignorant of the reality that they deal with day in and day out. And they've become quite adept at spiritual warfare, at learning how to be Christians in the midst of a real spiritual battle. And we are just blind to it. We just don't, we just don't think it's, it's happening. It's real. But again, look at the world and see if it lines up with what this book says. Recently, Charlottesville. We saw something that was a lot bigger, in my opinion, than just some people who had some hatred. This is the thing about, about the devil, is that he stirs up and, and amplifies and takes something bad and makes it way worse. So he's, he's, he's smart, he's deceptive, he's called the father of lies for a reason. When you look at that, you have to wonder, How did it grow to such a magnitude? It wasn't just basic racism. It was a kind of hatred and evil that got so big that it turned into this ugly display. And we see that in lots of different places in our culture. One of the movies that really disturbed me um, in recent years was called The, The Big Short. It has Steve Carell in it. It was about the short of the financial system that some people did when they saw the writing on the wall back in 2006, 2007, that there was systemic greed and bad loans and the real estate market was propped up on nothing and there were loans on loans on loans and I had to watch the movie twice just to get some sense of what had happened. I think it's fairly accurate. I'm not a finance guy but I think, or a real estate guy, but I think it was fairly accurate to what had happened and I look at that. And I realized this wasn't just a couple of greedy bankers or something. This was something that got amplified bigger. Like as if there was a power underneath it, pushing it, encouraging it, and blinding people to the reality until there was such a big thing built up that it, cr- it crumbled and did huge damage. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the term before in real estate underwater until 2007. We all know what that means now. Everybody's mortgage was upside down, the whole country. I mean, it's crazy. I have to wonder, is that because there is systemic evil and a being that was messing with the natural sin that's in people and making it bigger? Take it out to something even greater. You know, our church was really blessed by the Africans in Rwanda when we were in a conflict with the previous denomination we were part of. And Emmanuel Kalini came in, stuck his neck out for us, received the conservatives in, and he said, go and minister on my, on my um, province's ticket. We'll help you. Well, that, what that did is it got us looking at Rwanda. Who are these people? What's their story? Well, so we've, some of us have become pretty knowledgeable about the genocide there in 1994. I don't know if you realize this, but they had 7 million people in Rwanda. One million people died in brutal ways, not just with guns, usually with machetes. It was graphic and gory and awful, and it was so evil. In 100 days, the rate of this atrocity was actually greater than the rate of the Holocaust, now, the number at the end wasn't as big as the Holocaust, but it was so amplified, right? So just here, here we look at the word and we see there's this being called the devil all through it doing stuff. We look at the world and if we think he's just a, a cartoon, we're not looking well enough. We're not really seeing what's out there. Now, in our baptism service, we renounce the world's systems that are broken, that, are, that war against us. We renounce the sin that's in us. We also renounce the devil and demons. Now, if you want to read up on this, it's hard because it's in the apocalyptic genre. So like you go to Revelation chapter 12 and Satan is described in a, in a picture as a red dragon at war with the other angels and God. And when he's cast down, his tail sweeps a third of the angels with him. I don't think it's meant to be a literal number, like one out of three angels went with him. But I think it's enough to tell us that some of the heavenly host went with him when he fell. They were deceived by him and rebelled against God as well. So when I say the devil, I'm also meaning demons and these spiritual forces, these, these powers, these, these beings that are still here in the world. They're very much here, very much at work and active. And they're amplifying evil and they're doing damage. Then he's called the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we in the West think, uh, he's not real, you know. Now, I'm not saying you can always say the devil made me do it. But I think what he does is he comes along and he stirs up and he adds ideas and thoughts and bad stuff. So here's my definition of temptation it's enticement to do wrong with something good. So look at the text. There are three things in here. There are three ways that Jesus is tempted. The first one is with hunger, hunger is not a bad thing, God gave us desires. And then he also provides something to meet that desire. So um, if you go back to when they were in the wilderness in Israel, um, in the old days, God, they were hungry. God provided manna. Manna was good. It was good for them to eat it. But the temptation for some of them was to not trust God and to pull aside extra, think I've got to hoard some for tomorrow. And God said, don't do that. And those that did found that it turned itself into nastiness. It decayed instantly at night because he wanted to teach them something. My manna is good, I'll give you what you need today. Take what you need for today, I'll give you more tomorrow. Jesus fed 5,000 people on one instance and 4,000 on another with some loaves and fishes. They were hungry, Jesus provided bread. That's good, right? So here, Jesus is hungry and Satan comes along and says, if you're the son of God, say to this stone, become bread and feed yourself. Bread is good, but it would be used in a bad way there. Because what he was inciting him to do was use his ability as the one through whom all things were created to meet his personal need and not go down the path that God had planned for him. He was supposed to be out there fasting. He was not supposed to be using his power to prove he is who God just had said he was by turning this stone into bread. So it was a good thing being distorted. Or the second one, he shows him all the kingdoms and the power and authority of the world. And he says, I will give these to you if you'll worship me. Now, kingly rule is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Now, my question, if it was offered to me, that would be not a good thing, right? But Jesus is the rightful king. He is the one who's supposed to sit on that throne. The problem here was that it was through a shortcut. He was saying, don't go through the father's way, which is the cross. Here's a shortcut. Just worship me and I'll give it all to you right now. How easy is that? A good thing, but then done in a bad way. And then the last one is about protection. You know, it says in the scriptures, remember, I told you, Satan's smart. He quotes scripture back to Jesus and he's saying, all right, well, it says in the scripture, he won't let you dash your foot against the stone and his angels will hold you up. So here you are on the top of the temple, throw yourself down, right? To be protected by God is a good thing, but then to use that as a way of Tempting or testing God is a bad thing. So Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So pause for a minute. Think about your life. What are some good things that you may be tempted to use in a bad way or for a bad purpose or acquire on your terms instead of God's? How could you be drawn into that? Because Jesus is tempted in every way that we are, but he was without sin. So none of us are above this. It comes to all of us. Sometimes it's just our own desire, as James 1 says, that, that we are tempted when our own desires lure us in. And then when, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, which then gives birth to death. So sometimes it's just our desires. But then sometimes it's ideas that he puts in our mind. Right? That's pretty much the way that the enemy of God works. He gives you ideas. Sometimes it's your own idea. Sometimes it's not. And the ideas will, will mess with you. They will be questioning God's goodness. They will be about entitlement. Oh, go ahead. You deserve it. You can ask for forgiveness later. God's not really going to mind. It's not really going to hurt anybody else. Why are you making such a big deal of this? It'll be fun. These kind of thoughts sometimes are your own. Sometimes they're not. And now we need spiritual discernment to learn the difference. If you want to learn more about how to get spiritual discernment, talk to that man in the prayer team. They do training year-round on this, and our prayer team is really good at discernment. But we've got to recognize how the temptations are going to come. It's primarily about our thought life. So so here's the anatomy of a fall when you fall. It comes like this. The thought comes in. Go ahead. You deserve that. You worked hard for it. That should be yours. Why would you have to sacrifice? Everybody else is doing it. As I'm saying that, I'm thinking of something, I'll I'll tell you something where I fell in the past. In engineering school, I was in physics two, I think it was, which was really hard. We were studying how light works and the eyeball, and there were all these formulas of how light refracts, and it was a lot of advanced math and stuff. And the professor made us memorize, or he expected us to memorize all the formulas. But this was in the day when scientific calculators had just come out, and you can program a ton of stuff in those. And I realized that every student, I think every student, had put in there all the formulas that I was trying to memorize. And the thought was like, this isn't fair. They're all going to have the formulas. You're going to get the wrong answer because you don't even have the formulas memorized. So I put them in my calculator too. The thought was, it's not fair. Everybody else is doing it, so why don't you? I didn't even really think about that. I didn't recognize. I was like, okay, this is how the system works, and I'm in the system. I embrace the system. So the thought comes in like that right? It comes in, it it downplays the sin, it makes it okay, makes it normal. And then the minute it happens, the accuser goes, aha, you're not good. See, you're worse than everybody else. They don't actually do it. You did it for the wrong motives. And he starts pointing his finger like this. He's called the accuser. It says in Revelation 12 that he, he goes before the throne of God accusing us. That's what he does. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer, a liar. He's pointing his finger, and he's saying, aha, and then shame enters in. So see all this stuff. Let me back up here. Here's what what I'm pulling out of this text. These are good elements that are taken in a bad way. Um, they, They question God's goodness. You know, the original sin was the tree in the garden. Oh, he just doesn't want you to be like him. The serpent tempts them to question God's goodness. See, you'll know good from evil. He's holding something back on you. He can't be trusted. These kind of thoughts come in. So it's about thoughts and he messes with us. It's also about identity. Now I haven't pointed that out yet, but, it, but he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, you can circle the word if in there, if you are the son of God, if. Jesus had just heard he, is, he knows he's the son of God. The father just affirmed him and he questions his identity. And he does the same for us. He questions your identity. Uh, you're just a human. You know, you're not really a Christian. You're not really saved. God didn't really forgive you. Whatever it might be, it challenges identity. And then it also is about worship. Notice that in the, in the second one, it says, he says, if if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Satan is willing to trade all the authority and all the kingdoms of this world for just one thing. If the son of God would kneel down and worship him. That's what he wants, because again, from the apocryphal or from the um, the uh, apocalyptic type uh, genre in the Bible, we see that Lucifer was a very esteemed angel, and his primary thing that that stumbled, that he stumbled over was he wanted to be worshipped like God. He he just he the pride pride got him, and so he started to rebel against God. And so what he wants is worship, and he wants not only. Jesus to worship him, he wants you to worship him. And here's the frightening thing. This is a worldview world question again. There are not three different teams. There's not God's team, and then the enemy's team, and then free agents that are in the middle that can choose to kind of be on a third team. If you think you're a free agent, you're actually on the other team. That's the, that's the biblical worldview. There are not three options. There's either God's team or the world, which is in control of the prince of the world, which is Satan. And there's not a third option. So I want you to really consider whose team you're on. And none of us start out on God's team, unfortunately. So at some point in our lives, we have to make a choice to defect from the world system and from the prince of the world and choose to come to Christ. I want you to think about that if you've ever ever actually done that. And at the end of this sermon, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do it. And I'll explain how that's gonna come. But I really want you to consider changing teams If you think you're neutral, you're on a team is what I'm saying. It's what the Bible is saying. And I want to invite you to consider changing teams, to repent of that and go, Lord, I'm going to serve you. Now, I've done enough gloom and doom. Let me get on to the hope part of this message. All right. I'm I'm actually trying to preach Christ, not preach his enemy. And I've done enough on the enemy. So I want to um, talk about my main point, which is that Jesus gives victory over temptation. So where Adam failed in the garden, in that first garden, Jesus succeeded as the perfect Adam, the the righteous one, the one man who could not be taken out because he was sinless and perfect. This week, we were um, doing morning prayer at our 9 a.m. morning prayer time. And one of the texts was from Mark's gospel, and it was the Garden of Gethsemane. And I find it interesting that in our text today, it says that Satan left Jesus until an opportune time to tempt him again. Well, that came at the end of the three-year earthly ministry where he's in the garden And it's the night he's going to be betrayed and go to the cross. And that, I think, was a harder temptation for Jesus than the first one out in the wilderness. But I'm speculating there. But what does happen is Jesus brings his best friends, his inner three, Peter, James, and John. He brings all the disciples to Gethsemane. And then he, he withdraws a little further. And he says, you three stay here and pray and watch. Pray with me. And then he goes a little further and he starts to pray. Well, he comes back. And they're asleep. He wakes them up. Come on, watch with me. Can't you pray a little longer? And then he goes and does it again. Three times this happens. I think it's so interesting that threes are all through the Bible, right? In the, in the, in the wilderness, three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he stands on the word of God and says, get, get away from me, Satan. Three times he calls them to pray and three times they fail. Now, here's what I like about it. You and I are in good company. Peter, James, John, those guys, they couldn't do it. We can't do it. But thanks be to God, Jesus can. He's able to go it alone. Even without his disciples praying for him, he was able to hold the course all the way through and go to the cross. He really did have victory over temptation and sin and death. He does what we cannot do. So here's what's so amazing for us. If the the sin or the temptation to sin has to do with questioning God's goodness, and it's really about worship, then the cross answers that temptation. If Satan's saying to you, God's not really good, he doesn't love you, he's, he's got an ego problem, he's, that's why he wants you to worship him. It's not about you, it's about, or it's not about him, it's about you. If those kind of thoughts come to you, guess what the cross does? It totally levels that and it says, this world is so loved by God that he's willing to send his only son to die on the cross. That's how much he loves you. The cross shows us without doubt how big his love is, that he's willing to do that. Not only that, but it cuts the accuser off at the knees. So when he's there pointing his finger at you, and he's going, aha, I knew it, you are prideful. I knew it, you're not a good Christian. You're full of gossip and envy and lust and greed, and I'm filling. insert your sin here, right? He's doing that, and you go, you're right. Yes, you got me, you're right, but I'm forgiven. He's already paid the penalty for that. I'm forgiven and set free. And guess what? By the power of his spirit, he is actually changing me. That's not my identity anymore. I'm a son or daughter of God. I'm adopted into his household. He is healing me. He's making me like him. I was that. I'm not that anymore. I'm forgiven. Get away from me, Satan. Even if you stumble and fall, you come back to it. You repent, you come back and go, nope, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. That's what the cross does for us. That's how Jesus gives us victory over temptation. Now, some application points. I want you to adopt a biblical worldview so that you can keep watch. Look out there at what's happening. Look and see what's going on in the world. Recognize evil for what it is. Keep watch. I want you to work to overcome temptation in your own life. Because you're forgiven because of the cross, you can go honestly to God and go, this is the area I'm struggling with. Whatever it is, insecurities, fear, greed, as the Holy Spirit brings it to your mind, go to him and say, help me learn this. First Corinthians 10 tells us that God, that your, your temptation is not beyond what you can bear, that in his strength, you can overcome it. He will provide a way out for you so that when it comes, you can stand and not fall. So work on that. But don't let the enemy tell you that your salvation is in question. If you're a Christian, that's already done, that's dealt with. Now it's just about becoming more like Christ, and that's a lifelong project. Third, I want to encourage you to build a good and just society. Work to overturn the systems that I mentioned. You know, I I heard about a family that pitched a tent in their front yard in Houston after the water backed away some they could have been in their house. They chose to live in a tent on their front yard so that people who were looting houses would see someone was there. I, my theology has room for this, but as a Christian, I'm sort of aghast that people would go into that situation and steal stuff from people's houses when they're suffering under a hurricane. I think that's crazy. I think it's awful. It's evil. However, it's also pretty amazing that people are willing to pay great, cost and time and money and resources to go into that to help people. So all these stories we saw, pictures of people like carrying people on their backs and and putting a wheelchair on like an inflatable mattress and floating them down the street and all this stuff, these people were in there doing good. It was one of those rare moments where I saw people pray on the evening news. They were doing a little special report and they showed a group of people circle up and they prayed and then they went in and started helping people. Right? So there are some that work to heal society. There are some that go in and fix the problems. There are some that are fighting against Satan and the systems that are doing evil. Be one of those people. That's why we have a mission of the week each Sunday. And then lastly, worship the Lord. Let what he's done inspire worship in you. He has bought you with a price. He paid a great price for you. He's proved and shown, he's proven that he is good, that he loves you, that you are valuable. Return to him in worship and recognize that choosing the temptation is a type of idolatry. It's saying, this is more important to me than you. Whatever form that takes, it's a form of idolatry and it's about worship. Now, I mentioned earlier that I want to give some some of you a chance to consider changing teams. If you have never explicitly prayed for salvation, to renounce sin, the world, and Satan, and and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus and ask him to be your savior, I want you to do it today in a specific way. We have prayer cards that are in those pew racks. And before communion, I'll I'll explain what I do every Sunday that you can turn in prayer requests. If you are gonna pray a prayer right now with me and convert, I want you to write that down. Say, I made a decision to follow Jesus today. Put your name on it and I'm gonna personally follow up with you. I'm gonna give you some resources. I'm gonna help you in the coming weeks as you start to realign with God's kingdom. And for the rest of us, there are probably parts of our lives where we're holding back. I want to encourage you to surrender those too and ask the Lord into those parts of your life. So I want to invite you to pray with me now and let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, you are the great victor. You have overcome. You have defeated our enemy. You have defeated sin and death. Lord, for the person or people in this room who've never Turn to you, I pray now that you would help them. You give them the courage to say, Jesus, you're my Lord, I repent and I come to you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon them in such a mighty way that their lives would be transformed. Give them the courage, Lord, to choose you because you've chosen them. And Lord, for each one of us who have some aspect, some area of our life, a temptation, an area of sin that just keeps dogging us, would you give us the courage to bring it to you in prayer? Would you show us the way out? Would you help us? I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.